In the name of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Good afternoon, everyone. It's great to be back with you for this third of the four noonday preaching events, and I appreciate your being here. Um, In most or the two seasons of the church's year that are marked by uh, more intentional devotion and to some degree austerity, namely the seasons of Advent and Lent, uh, each of those seasons has a midpoint that the church has designated as a time to lighten up uh, in your rule of life and your devotion and all your austerity. And remember that you're a child of the Most High and don't give up that central idea that what awaits you in the end is joy. Uh, So uh, if the liturgical police come to get me, Jeffrey, I I hope you'll protect me, but I'm going to call today Mid-Holy Week, Uh, and a day to maybe lighten up a little. And to do that, I would like to begin by telling a story of, of three Roman Catholic ladies who, in the Chicago area, made a point of going to Mass every morning. Then after Mass, they would go to the coffee shop, and they would talk amongst each other and share uh, usually stories about their sons, who were all three in the church. This day, they went to church, and they had a visitor with them from Wisconsin. And so after church, they adjourned to Starbucks or wherever it was, and they sat down and had coffee. And in way of introduction to the visitor, one of the women said, uh, well, my name is so-and-so, and my son is a priest. And when he walks in the room, everybody stands up and says, Monsignor. And the next lady said, well, that's wonderful, but, but my son is a bishop. And every time he walks in the room, everybody stands up and says, Your Grace. The next one said, Well, I hate to tell you, but, but my son is a cardinal. And every time he walks in the room, everybody stands up and says, Your Eminence. And then they looked at the visitor and said, well, what about you? And she says, well, my son's not in the church, but he's 6'3", has beautiful sparkling blue eyes, blonde hair, drives a Porsche, wears tight jeans, participates in triathlons. And when he walks in the room, everybody stands up and says, 
oh my God. <laughs> Lord, forgive me. <laughs> Holy Week. On Sunday, Jesus rides into Jerusalem uh, on a colt, sort of a parody of any triumphal entry. What king, what general would ride in in victorious celebration riding on an animal? that was of the lowest grade imaginable. It was an anti-parade, if anything. As Harvey Cox has called it in the Feast of Fools, it's a big joke. Nevertheless, in Jerusalem, where pilgrims from all over the Mediterranean world, mainly Jews from the diaspora, have come to worship in Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, the most important feast day in the life of the Jewish nation in which they celebrate the seminal event of their identity, which was their deliverance from the Egyptians uh, through the leadership of Moses and through the Lord God's power being demonstrated in setting them free from being captives and to leading them across the Red Sea into the wilderness where for 40 years they struggled, but eventually they went into the promised land. So Jesus, I think, had decided that it was time for him to bring his message to the city of David, to the city that many regard as the where the umbilical cord to God from the earth resides, the city of God, and to confront the city of God with his message. He comes in on Sunday, and it turns out that it's late in the day, and you don't do a demonstration, as we all know, late in the day. You do it during the regular day, daylight hours where everybody can see it and participate in it. And so Jesus comes in, he surveys the temple area, he sees the thousands of people and the animals and everything in the court of the Gentiles, and then he sizes it up and then it says he retreats to where he's staying in Bethany, perhaps with the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And there he spends the night. The next morning, on Monday morning, Jesus comes into town. And there's a very odd snippet in the gospel according to Mark that when Jesus is on his way into Jerusalem, he's hungry. And there's no Starbucks or Hardee's on the way where he can stop and have breakfast. And so he's walking by and he sees a fig tree. And the fig tree is not in season to bear figs. And so Jesus, very unhappy about the situation and wanting to have something to eat, curses the fig tree. Why this necessarily was in 
the Gospels at this particular point. It seems to be one of those odd little nuanced parts of the Gospels that only an eyewitness could provide. But anyway, he goes into the temple, and there he's incensed uh, at what he sees of the money changers and all of the economic work, the work of mammon going on in the house of God. And so he proceeds to do this, uh, this act that's very much in keeping with prophetic Yahwism out of which Jesus came in the prophetic tradition, much like Jeremiah before him to illustrate to the people of what God was going to do because of their disobedience and their apostasy is that he took a clay urn and he lifts it up in front of everybody and then he smashes it to the ground where it can never be put back together and he says, this is what the Lord God is going to do to you. Or Jeremiah. Or excuse me. Isaiah, walking through the streets of Jerusalem, nude. And to do that, to get the attention and to deliver the message to the people that God is angry and God is going to bring his wrath upon you and that you will be, everything will be taken away from you if you continue to do this. And his nakedness reveals what's going to happen. Ezekiel built a scale model of the city of Jerusalem and then built toy soldiers and put it all around Jerusalem saying this is what's going to happen for you for forsaking your God. So get ready. It's not unlike the Berrigan brothers in the late 60s who would break into social security centers and pour duck blood on the record, social security records of the people who were to be drafted so they didn't have to go serve in Vietnam. Or what happened, the young man standing in front of a tank in Tiananmen Square And so Jesus does that. And basically, he provides a provocative act that will necessitate his being arrested and killed. But he leaves safely from the temple precincts that day because it says that the chief priests and the temple hierarchy don't want to arrest him because the crowds are there and the crowds are sympathetic to him and they don't want to set off an outburst and a riot. And so he goes back to Bethany and then he comes back the next day. And Peter says as they're walking into Jerusalem, he looks at the fig tree and it's totally withered. And they make a comment about it, and Jesus says, such is the power of faith. Elsewhere, he'd said, 
anyone who has this kind of trust, this kind of faith, could be could say to the mountain, be moved and it would be hurled into the sea. Hyperbolic, I'm sure, but to Jesus, faith was a power you could lay hold of. So now, back in the temple, the leaders and the authorities seek to discredit him over what I call a series of great debates. Jesus tells the parable of the wicked tenants, and he says, you are the wicked tenants, something that did not win him friends and influence people. They try to entrap him on the issue of paying taxes, on paying taxes to Caesar. And Jesus, in his famous saying, said, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God. And that's been used in history as a separation of church and state. In fact, Nazi Germany used it as a reason for the church not to interfere with the political regime and what was happening. The point of that was, Jesus is saying, is that everything belongs to God. Nothing belongs to Caesar. Caesar won't be here long. And then he has the debate on the resurrection with the Sadducees, the temple aristocrats who believe there is no resurrection. And so the Sadducees post this religious conundrum to Jesus about a wife had seven husbands. And according to the Jewish law of leveret marriage, a husband had to marry the widow of his brother. Well, it happened seven times, and so the Sadducees said, well, if you're so smart, what happens in the afterlife if you say there's a resurrection? To whom will she be married? Which of the seven? And Jesus says, well, let me tell you something. In heaven, to be married will be about as necessary as Noah to keep the ark after he reached Mount Ararat. There is no love and particularity in heaven. It's all love. For some, that's great news. For the others, it comes as bad news. Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple Again, the crowds prevent his being arrested. He goes into his apocalyptic discourse, which was put in there probably by Mark after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, where it becomes a desolating sacrilege. And then he goes to Bethany, where the only really tender, loving, passionate event of Holy Week happens where a nameless woman at the house of Simon the leper takes an expensive jar of nard and anoints his body 
from head to toe, this perfume, oil, very sensual, loving experience. One of the disciples, Judas, protests that this money could have been spent on the poor. To which Jesus replies, yes, it could, but the poor you will have with you always, and this is a very special occasion. Let her do it. And so Judas, supposedly the treasurer of the disciples, probably a zealot who wanted the overthrow of the Romans by force, disillusioned with Jesus as being a wimp and not a Messiah, not some kind of a Schwarzkopf. The story turns to Judas and what he will do to betray the Lord, which, according to Dante Alighieri and his divine comedy in the first of the trilogies, The Inferno, which in Italian means hell, the lowest circle in hell is occupied by Brutus, who assassinated Caesar, and Judas, who betrayed Jesus. And even though Judas did that, tomorrow we will see at the foot washing that, that Jesus, in telling them to love one another as I've loved you, does something really, really interesting. He washes the feet of his betrayer. And in his doing that, In this enacted parable, he is saying, love your enemies, do good to those that persecute you, so that you will be children of the Father and the Most High, who loves everyone totally and completely, even in their sin. Amen.